Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus, because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello to everyone, those who are gathered here and those who are watching and listening online. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. Happy Daylight Satan Sunday. That's the way I always feel about it. Those clocks we don't set forward the night before, they mock us this morning. You get in the car, oh, it's really 7.30, that's terrible. That's why I feel so bad. Today, we are going to work through what is the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. John 4 begins with Jesus and his disciples traveling north from Judea back up to Jesus's home territory of Galilee. And in verse 4, John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, which at first glance doesn't seem to be accurate. There were multiple routes from Judea to Galilee. Jesus and his disciples could have taken the western route along the coast, or they could have taken the eastern route on the other side of the Jordan. There were many different ways to get from Judea down south up north to Galilee without going straight through Samaria. So when John says that he had to go through Samaria, he must be speaking about something other than a geographical necessity. In fact, back then, many Jews would have been very happy to go around Samaria using either one of these routes rather than go straight through what they considered to be an unclean land populated by an unclean people who had compromised the purity of the Jewish line and faith by marrying Gentiles centuries before. But none of this keeps Jesus from growing straight through Samaria, which for some reason he had to do. So after several hours of walking, Jesus and his disciples come to the Samaritan village of Sakar, which is near a well that dates all the way back to the patriarch Jacob. And the Samaritans took great pride in having that well within their territory and the way it connected them to Jacob and, remember, his favorite son, Joseph. They've been walking for several hours, so Jesus is tired. And it's noon, lunchtime, and the disciples are hangry. So they go into the village to get some food while Jesus sits down by this well to rest. And he's not there long before 
A Samaritan woman comes out to the well in the middle of the day by herself to draw some water. And she must have nearly dropped her water jar when this Jewish stranger asks her for a drink of water. She says in verse 9, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And this is an understandable question. Many Jews in that day refused to drink water from the same bucket or jar or container or cup as a Samaritan. And some Jewish rabbis had particularly nasty things to say about Samaritan women. How can this be? She asked. Why would you ask me for a drink? And Jesus responds playfully, I think, initiating a much deeper conversation. Verse 10, he says, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is making the same offer to her that he made to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Offering the gift of eternal life through the power of the Spirit, which here he symbolizes as living water. If you knew you were talking to, you'd be asking me for my water, he says. And just like Nicodemus, she takes this metaphorical, theological statement from Jesus about living water literally. And she asks him, well, how in the world do you plan on getting any water from this well when you don't have your own bucket or jar? And then she asks Jesus, playfully, I think, do you think you're greater than Jacob, who owned this well originally? Jesus corrects her literal misunderstanding in verse 13 saying everyone who drinks water, this water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, Jesus says, yes, I am greater than Jacob. And the water I am offering you is better than any water you will ever get from this or any other well. And she responds then to this invitation and says, well, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She wants this water, but she still clearly misunderstands what he's offering. Look, if you've got some special water that you have access to that'll quench my thirst forever and I don't have to keep lugging this jar out here every day, then give me this water. I'm ready for it. I'm open to this kind of water. Misunderstanding what he's saying. And Jesus then follows up with the non sequitur to end all non sequiturs, saying in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. To which she famously replies, I have no husband. 
To which he even more famously replies, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, it's at this point I need to pause the story and confess that for a majority of my preaching career, I think I have misread this part of the conversation. Up until a few years ago, thanks to Heather showing me a different way to read this story, I have always interpreted, along with many others, Jesus calling for her husband being his way of calling out her sexual immorality and calling attention to her sinful lifestyle. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's what's going on. She's married and divorced five times, and now she's shacking up with her latest fling. Which would then explain why she comes to the well in the middle of the day all by herself instead of with the other women in the village. She is a scandalous, immoral outcast. Maybe all of that's true, but it doesn't have to be. This story is open to multiple interpretations. She may be a five-time widow, and now she can't get a sixth guy to marry her. Because there is a superstitious assumption in the village now that she's somehow cursed. It may be that the man she's living with is the brother of her last husband who died. And he has taken her into his home to care for her as the law of Moses, which the Samaritans took seriously, commands. It may be that she has been divorced five times and not a single one of them was her doing. That each of her husbands divorced her because she was barren. And as her perceived value among the men in that village diminished with each divorce, she was finally forced to move in with a man for provision and protection in a patriarchal culture. She is simply doing the best she can do with an impossibly hard situation. Now, all of those possibilities are just as possible as the traditional assumption that she's some bar-hopping floozy What if instead of confronting her with the scandalous truth, Jesus is letting her know that he sees and understands and knows about her tragic situation? If so, then what she says next is not some dodgy attempt to change the subject. It's a sincere theological response to someone who has an obvious connection to God. Because she immediately takes the conversation to theology, saying, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Now, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, a sacred mountain in Samaria, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. As soon as she sees there's something special about Jesus, because he sees and knows her situation, she immediately pivots to the place from which people are supposed to worship God, which is an appropriate topic to address to a prophet of God. And Jesus follows her lead, drops the subject of her marital status. It never comes up again. And he responds to her statement that's sort of a question by saying, look, there is a time coming where the place from which people worship isn't going to matter. It won't matter if it's in the temple in Jerusalem or on your sacred mountain in Samaria. All of that's changing. And he speaks of a time when his spirit-filled followers who have that living water bubbling up within them will worship God from wherever they are in spirit and truth with an accurate understanding and depiction of God in their minds because of and through Jesus. Now, that's a mouthful for Jesus to say there in a conversation by the well. And the truth is, she doesn't understand this declaration from Jesus any more than she understands his offer of living water. So she says to Jesus, well, when the Christ comes, he'll explain all of this to us. The Samaritans were looking for and waiting for some kind of Messiah to come and straighten everything out as well. And that's when Jesus leans forward. And he says, I am the one who speaks with you. Now, in some translations, it says, I am he. But in the original language, the word he isn't there. Jesus literally says, I am, which on the lips of Jesus is a phrase of divine revelation. If you go back to Exodus, God reveals God's self to Moses at the burning, but I am who I am. Jesus, she says, well, maybe the Messiah will come and explain this. And Jesus, I am. I am the one who's speaking to you. This is the most explicit revelation of Jesus's divine identity so far in the Gospel of John. And it happens not in Jerusalem, but in the land of the unclean Samaritans while he is speaking with a woman who could not be more unlike Nicodemus. Last week I made much of Nicodemus, this respected religious leader coming to Jesus at night, because I think it's John's way of saying that he was in the dark. But this Samaritan woman, unnamed, we never know her name, comes to Jesus in the middle of the day, broad daylight, high noon, if you will, which may be John's way of saying she's not in the dark. She is open to Jesus and what he's offering in a way that few others were during his ministry. And it's her open heart that keeps this conversation with Jesus going longer than any other in the Gospels. It only ends because his disciples come back from town with food and they are alarmed to see Jesus sitting there talking with a woman all alone. Doesn't he know about the Billy Graham rule, they wonder among themselves? And their arrival sends this woman scurrying back to town without her water jar, which she leaves at the well. 
More symbolism from John, I'm sure. And glad to be rid of the Samaritan woman, the disciples then urge Jesus to eat some food. And he tells them, look, I have food that you know nothing about. They take him literally and wonder, well, who brought him lunch? Better not have been that Samaritan woman. And is now the established pattern in these kind of stories, Jesus corrects their literal misunderstanding by saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. While you all were in town looking for food, I was here feasting on the will of my father by having a life-changing conversation with a Samaritan woman who, meanwhile, has gone back into town to tell everyone about Jesus, saying in verse 29, come and see. Remember that phrase from earlier in the Gospel of John, John 1? Come and see who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And her neighbors believe her testimony about Jesus, and they come and see Jesus. And they invite him to stay or abide with them for a while. And he does. He stays with them for two days. And after which they're able to say in verse 42, saying to the woman first, we no longer believe just because what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. We know he is the savior of the world. Savior of the world was a title ascribed to Caesar. And here these Samaritans recognize that the one who's greater than Jacob is also greater than Caesar. And they come to know this. Because Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he could eat his favorite food, which was doing the will of his Father in heaven. Which in this instance led him to cross all sorts of boundaries ethnic, religious, and gender so that he could offer living water, the gift of life to a thirsty Samaritan woman with a tragic past, whom God then uses to lead her people to the Lord. And along the way, Jesus shows and tells his disciples, both then and now, how to do the same. Which means learning to cross all sorts of barriers and boundaries to share the good news of Jesus with others. It also means learning to see others who are not like us, others who we may not like, others who we would look down upon or despise, to see them the same way Jesus does. I've chosen not to characterize this woman as immoral. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. 
I know this, Jesus never calls her to repent in the story. Never does he say to her, go and sin no more, the way he does with the woman caught in adultery in John 8. There's no hint in Jesus' language of judgment or condemnation. We import all of that because of our assumptions. What he does do is see her for who she is. He sees her situation. He sees her pain, her tragedy, her emptiness, her thirst. And because he sees and knows her, she sees him. She sees him first as a prophet, and then that even greater revelation. Now, we can't see into the hearts and know others the way Jesus does. And I think largely that's a good thing. I don't know that we could handle the truth about ourselves or each other. We can't see into each other's heart and know each other the way Jesus does, but we can learn and know more about each other. We can learn and know more about others, especially what makes their lives hard. If we learn to stop passing judgment and instead be more curious. If we can learn to stop making assumptions and instead ask more questions. Perhaps if we could see and know each other the way Jesus sees and knows us, we would see more of Jesus in each other. And if we could see others the way Jesus sees them, whoever they are, perhaps they would see more of Jesus in us. May we never stop drinking the living water of salvation Jesus offers. But also, may we learn to do more and more of the will of God, which leads us to cross boundaries. Because that could, like Jesus, become our favorite food. Let's stand for the benediction. Got two slides. This first slide we'll all read together, and then the second slide I'll read to you as a final word or charge. Let's read together. Let's read this together. We have encountered the living God through the love of the living Christ. We have been refreshed by living water. Go now to live in the hope this encounter inspires. Be water bearers to a dry and parched world, knowing that the God of love and hope goes before you and with you always. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.